The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Lies, stealing babies, and Roseanne. This is Thursday, May 31st, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. We'll get to Roseanne in stunning detail, but there's a much bigger fish on the other line. The leader of the free world lies, and he does it a lot. He lies so frequently it seems compulsive. He is by definition a liar, and strangely not a very good one, not that either one matters to his voter base. As of the first of this month, the Washington Post fact check says Trump, as president, has lied more than 3,000 times in his first 466 days. That's an average of more than six lies a day. This week on Tuesday, he told a whopper. Let's go to the tweet in which he provided no evidence. Quote, The 13 angry Democrats, plus people who worked eight years for Obama, working on the rigged Russia witch hunt, will be meddling in the midterm elections, especially now that Republicans, stay tough, are taking the lead in the polls. To which he added, there was no collusion except by the Democrats. Except by the Democrats got an exclamation point, as did his encouragement to Republicans to stay tough. In his accusation against the Mueller team, the word meddling was in all caps. It was a clear attempt by a desperate president to fire up his base against the investigation into the Russia attack on the election that put Trump into office. And it does not matter to his base that, as lies go, this one contained incorrect information based on a willful ignorance of the facts. First, the 13 angry Democrats, to which Trump refers, is his nickname for the 18 mostly Republican career law enforcement professionals investigating a Russian attack on the United States. He got the numbers wrong. He got the politics wrong. He was also wrong about Republicans taking a lead in the polls. Even Trump supporters Trey Gowdy and Andrew Napolitano think so, and they said so on Fox even the so-called Fox News Channel is disputing Trump's claim that the deep state FBI had planted a spy in his campaign. But Trump doesn't care if the claim's untrue. As an aide to Steve Bannon told Roy Moore's lawyer on tape, it doesn't matter if it's true. The important thing is to get it out there. It is the Steve Bannon-Donald Trump school of politics to make unsubstantiated accusations and repeat them to appeal to a particular voter base. Repetition is a basic tenet of successful advertising, and Trump's found it effective in his brand of politics, even when, perhaps especially when, the accusation is a lie. Trump's Tuesday tweet lied about the kind of people whose investigation has led very close to him. He even lied about the number, but facts only get in the way. While several members of the Mueller team have donated to Democrats, Robert Mueller and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein are Republicans, as are most of the investigators on this case. Using the word rigged worked very well for Trump in the campaign. He said it often to discredit the election process that he and almost everyone else believed would lead to his defeat. Now he's using the word rigged again on the Mueller investigation. Because the important thing is to get it out there. And we now know why Trump lies about the legitimate free press. I do it to discredit you all and demean you all. So when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. That's what Trump told CBS 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl when she spoke to him without a microphone during the campaign. At a recent gathering of journalists, the veteran reporter recounted asking Trump about the lying and the media. 
Stalls said she told Trump the lies were getting tired. Remember, this was two years ago. And she asked him why he still did it. And without a microphone present, he gave her the honest answer. To this day, Trump continues to lie about the media and what it dutifully reports. On Friday, White House reporters were given what's known as a background briefing. The White House has been giving these throughout our recent history, and the person who briefs the reporters is, by mutual agreement, an unnamed White House official. And cameras and microphones are strictly prohibited from these briefings. As the weekend approached, an unnamed White House official told reporters a number of things, including that, at that point, there wouldn't be enough time to get the North Korea summit together for its original June 12th date. The journalist in the room dutifully reported what they'd been told. The next day on Twitter, Trump wrote, The failing New York Times quotes a senior White House official who doesn't exist. Wrong again, Trump tweeted in all caps, adding some wise and professional journalistic advice. Use real people, not phony sources with exclamation marks all round. Trump had proven his ignorance again by declaring that a person in his White House who does exist, does not exist. To discredit and demean you, said the man who is now president, so when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. It should be noted that Trump knows that putting the heat on others helps take the heat off him. The polls show it appears to be working, repeating these lies as Trump has bashed the Mueller probe, public approval of it has slipped a bit, even among Democrats. And at least one poll from Monmouth University indicates that a bipartisan majority of us believes that an unelected deep state is manipulating the nation's policies. The encouraging flip side to that is that Trump's approval ratings remain significantly lower than the approval of the Mueller probe. It should also be noted that Trump also just enjoys a good conspiracy theory, As a candidate, he claimed the government knew about the September 11th attacks before they happened. He hinted that Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia had been murdered when, in fact, Scalia died in his sleep from a heart attack. For years, Trump claimed Obama was born in Kenya. These days, Trump's conspiracy theories include a criminal deep state and a free press that's fake, a stain on America and the enemy of the people, he calls the press. And now other stories the leader of the free world doesn't want you to believe. Indeed, the headlines these days do verge on the unbelievable. The former head of U.S. intelligence said publicly that he believes Russia did affect the outcome of the 2016 election. James Clapper emphasized that he was speaking as a private citizen in a way that would have been improper were he still the head of intelligence. Director of National Intelligence James Clapper chose his words carefully as he told PBS... Given the massive effort the Russians made and the number of citizens they touched and the multidimensional aspects of what they did to influence public opinion, and given the fact that it turned on less than 80,000 votes in three states, it exceeds logic that they didn't affect the election. Clapper was saying that Russia was a factor, perhaps even the deciding factor, in an election that was itself a little unbelievable. There's a good chance we'll never know for sure. It was on that same day that another historically unbelievable thing happened. FBI officials showed members of Congress classified notes from an ongoing counterintelligence investigation that involves the president. Such a thing has never happened before. Federal prosecutors telling friends of the suspect what was learned from a confidential informant. The briefing was hosted by the White House and was brought to order by Trump Chief of Staff John Kelly and Emmett Flood, who is Trump's top Russia defense attorney. Unlike the talkative Rudy Giuliani, Emmett Flood works behind the scenes quietly as Trump's real Russia lawyer. 
And among the lawmakers in the room, the one Trump most wanted at that briefing, California Congressman Devin Nunes, who has repeatedly proven his blind loyalty to Trump. There was never any doubt that Nunes would quickly get word to Trump and his lawyers about what was revealed in that meeting. Giuliani was absolutely expecting it, saying, we are certainly entitled to know. Specifically, Republicans wanted to know more about the informant who had met briefly with three Trump campaign officials who had known contact with Russians. This longtime reliable informant has now been outed, thus ending his career of service to the U.S. government. This is the informant that Trump and his supporters have claimed falsely infiltrated his campaign. Their suspicion is or was that this informant was motivated by politics, that he's somehow part of the so-called deep state that Trump claims is out to get him. In truth, informants are routine stuff for the FBI, and this informant has served in several Republican administrations. But this was the information Devin Nunes had been trying to get for several weeks, and yet, since the briefing, Nunes and other Republicans have said very little. The White House, Trump, and his lawyers have said very little. Democrats, led by Congressman Adam Schiff, have only said that the briefing further assured them that the investigation is legitimate. But they were all outraged that the investigative notes concerning the informant were being shown to Trump's friends in Congress. The Democrats were. The FBI and the U.S. intelligence community were in a tough spot. Either violate protocol, set a bad precedent, and endanger the investigation by giving Nunes what he wanted, or get subpoenaed and face a long court battle with Team Trump. Democrat Mark Warner, who co-chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, was also at that briefing, and he too was outraged at the presence of Trump's chief of staff and Trump's lawyer, of all people. Democrats were ultimately included in that briefing, originally designed exclusively for Devin Nunes. Trump was spying on the FBI that he falsely claimed spied on him. And while a former national intelligence director was suggesting that Trump is an illegitimately elected president, Trump's TV lawyer was suggesting that the origins of the Mueller probe are illegitimate as well. It was in an interview on CNN in which Rudy Giuliani admitted to a strategy of trying to undermine the investigation. He told the interviewer, quote, they're giving us the material to do it. We have to do it. And Giuliani said it's all about PR, bending public perception regardless of what the investigation finds. If Mueller writes a negative story about Trump, no one will believe him. It's the same strategy Trump uses on the free press. It is for public opinion, said Giuliani, adding, because eventually the decision here is going to be impeach or not impeach. Members of Congress, said Giuliani, are going to be informed by their constituents. So our jury, said Giuliani, is the American people. This jury of the American people will apparently take its first vote on November 6th when they elect or don't elect a Congress that would vote to impeach Trump. Nearly all Democrats, the majority of independents, and some Republicans will go to the polls on that day, as will the majority of Republicans and the few independents who support Trump. When Trump spoke recently to an anti-abortion group, he read from the script that had been written for him by one or more members of his White House staff. Your vote in 2018 is every bit as important as your vote in 2016, he read, and then he went off script, adding, although I'm not sure I really believe that. I don't know who the hell wrote that line. I'm not sure, but it's still important, remember. Trump no doubt realizes the importance of the midterm election, and yet he seems to not care how it goes. Trump had already given up on Congress, frustrated in his attempts to guide it through repealing Obamacare or shutting down the country's borders. 
To be successful with Congress would require hard work on complicated details with an understanding of public policy. These are all things Trump has managed to avoid because he finds them boring, not as much fun as tweeting or phoning Fox and Friends. Besides, the midterms aren't directly about him, despite Steve Bannon's insistence that congressional election is all about Trump. The challenge is getting Republican voters to get off the couch and vote since Trump's name isn't actually on the ballot. Many Republicans are so focused on Trump they're paying no attention to their local congressional races. They're paying no attention to who might vote to impeach their guy or who might keep him in office. And it doesn't help that their guy is telling them that it isn't important to vote this year. The New York Times reports the quiet formation of a cross-partisan network of Democrats, Republicans, and others who oppose Donald Trump. It is not a formal organization, at least not at the moment. But it began to form loosely when Trump rose to power two years ago, and it includes such luminaries as conservative commentator Bill Kristol. Conservatives are donating money to this cause. Liberals are donating money to this cause. Together, they're working to financially back candidates who can provide a centrist challenge to Trump in 2020 should he complete his term and run again. Together, they're looking for a good old-fashioned Republican who can run against Trump or even a centrist who's running on a third-party ticket. This cross-partisan group shares a common goal, to break the standoff between Republicans faithful to Trump and the liberals pulling the Democratic Party harder to the left. Now key liberals and key conservatives are quietly working together to pay for the campaigns of candidates who fall into that more traditional category. A conservative light. A conservative everyone could live with if elected. A conservative to run against Trump for the Republican nomination in 2020, should it come to that. Meanwhile, back in Congress, a few Republicans are standing up to Trump, and the one from whom we hear most often is hard to read. Arizona's Jeff Flake, who's announced he's retiring at the end of his term, now says he's not ruling out anything. And although Flake has voted with Trump in the Senate time after time, he's at the same time standing up to Trump. And he says he believes more Republicans should. Flake sees what we see, quoting him, we may have hit bottom. In recent remarks to Harvard Law School grads and reporters from the Washington Post, Flake said, Our presidency has been debased by a figure who has a seemingly bottomless appetite for detraction and division and only a passing familiarity of how the Constitution works. Flake is also disgusted by the name-calling. Quoting again, When you refer to your opponents in Congress and you call them losers and clowns and nicknames, that's debasing the presidency. That's not presidential, said Flake. Flake shares the hope of the group looking for a more middle-of-the-road approach. I do hope, he says, that somebody challenges the president in the primary, if only to remind Republicans what Republicans stands for. And then there are the criminal and counterintelligence investigations into what the Russians did in 2016 and what part, if any, the Trump campaign played in that effort. The New York Times reports that during the transition, Trump lawyer Michael Cohen met in Trump Tower with a Russian who is now sanctioned by the U.S., barred from coming here in the first place. Cohen met the Russian oligarch in Trump Tower during the transition. Trump had won the election, but Obama was still president at this time. January 9th, 2017, it was Trump's personal lawyer and Russian billionaire Viktor Vexelberg meeting for the second of three occasions. If Viktor Vexelberg sounds familiar... It's because we recently learned he's been questioned by special counsel Robert Mueller. The plot thickens. 
A company tied to Vexelberg donated $300,000 to Trump's inauguration and paid Michael Cohen $580,000 for his consulting services. This now-sanctioned company, Columbus Nova, has been turning over documents to the special counsel's investigators. And the FBI already has Michael Cohen's documents after its raid on his home, hotel room, office, and safe deposit box. And Shredder. And by the way, unlike AT&T and Novartis, Columbus Nova has not expressed its regrets about hiring Michael Cohen as a consultant. Columbus Nova is owned and operated by a cousin of Victor Vexelberg. Now that the Mueller team has spoken with Vexelberg and gotten the records from Columbus Nova and gotten the records from Michael Cohen, the pressure on Cohen to flip is tremendous. The semi-lawyer who said he'd take a bullet for Trump may now be making very real choices about his future and those of his wife and his two daughters. Even the promise of a presidential pardon would not spare Michael Cohen from the charges he faces from the state of New York. The pressure on Cohen is tremendous, especially now that his longtime business partner has become a witness for the prosecution. Despite his pledges of loyalty, Cohen may choose freedom from prison over loyalty to Trump. Or maybe he'll take that bullet for the man who buttered his bread for more than a dozen years. So far, Cohen is asserting his Fifth Amendment right to avoid self-incrimination. That could change. But Trump has weighed in, rushing to Cohen's defense, at least on Twitter. Most people will flip if the government lets them out of trouble, even if it means lying, tweeted Trump, adding, I don't see Michael doing that, despite the horrible witch hunt and the dishonest media. The New York Times brought us additional new information this week about the case against the president for obstruction of justice. The Times reports the Mueller team focused on, among other things, a two-month period in which Trump was pressuring and criticizing Attorney General Jeff Sessions for recusing himself. Without Sessions in the game, Trump felt he was losing control over the investigation as if that were something he had in the first place. And through the Times reporting, we've learned some of what investigators have learned about Trump's various efforts in those two months. We had already known that in February and March of last year, Trump ordered White House counsel Don McGahn to put pressure on Sessions not to recuse himself. McGahn reluctantly carried out that order, and it didn't work. Sessions bowed out anyway, and Trump exploded in anger, witnessed by multiple White House officials. Trump barked that he expected his top law enforcement official to protect him, the way he believes Bobby Kennedy did for JFK, the way he believes Eric Holder protected Barack Obama. Never mind the factual disconnect, Trump believes it is the job of the United States Attorney General to protect him. We've since learned that it was in those two months and presumably under Trump's orders that then-Chief of Staff Reince Priebus had called Comey to urge him to make a public statement saying that Trump was not under investigation. Comey refused. A White House lawyer even intentionally misled Trump about his authority as president to fire the FBI director. The president's people were trying to protect him from himself while at the same time trying to give him what he wanted. The Times reports that Trump's anger flared again when Comey testified for Congress and also refused to tell lawmakers that Trump was or wasn't under investigation. Unfortunately for Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General was in the White House the day that Trump exploded over Comey's testimony. And Sessions took a lot of shrapnel. Trump tore into him for recusing himself, questioned Sessions' loyalty, and said he wanted to get rid of Comey. He repeated his Bobby Kennedy-Eric Holder conspiracy theory. Two days later, Sessions, perhaps to prove his loyalty was asking a congressional staffer if they uh, 
had any dirt on James Comey. The staffer says Sessions told him that even just one negative article from the news media should do the trick, if the staffer knew of any. That weekend, Trump was at Mar-a-Lago watching video of Comey's testimony and again discussing firing the man who was then leading the Russia probe. He discussed it with his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and White House strategist Stephen Miller. Trump then wrote a scathing letter to justify firing then-FBI Director James Comey, mentioning the Russia probe in the very first sentence. But White House lawyer Don McGahn talked Trump out of sending that letter. Trump's letter was given to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to use for reference when writing his own reasons for firing James Comey, which he did, citing Comey's handling of the Clinton investigation. Trump's letter now in the hands of Robert Mueller as Mueller investigates the president for obstruction of justice. In a meeting that included Rosenstein, Sessions, and Trump, Rosenstein had agreed to write a letter that would justify the removal of Comey, and Comey was fired the very next day. But within a week, Rosenstein hired Robert S. Mueller III to lead an investigation into the Russian attack and any part the Trump campaign might have had in it. Trump again tore into Jeff Sessions, again calling him disloyal and telling Sessions to resign. Sessions submitted his resignation letter the next day, but Trump sent it back with a handwritten note at the top that said, not accepted. Yesterday, Trump said he regretted hiring Sessions as his attorney general. So this continues. It appears Trump is trying to force Sessions to quit so Sessions can be replaced by someone who won't recuse themselves. Sessions has made it clear he's only going if he's fired, something Trump has been advised not to do. Trump's attack on normalcy extends to the men and women who've made it their careers to make government work. This past week, Trump rolled back the protections that have benefited federal workers for decades. And key to this approach is an attack on unions, Agencies directed to negotiate tougher contracts with unions and cutting the times that employees can be paid for the work they do on behalf of their unions. The unions will now be charged rent for the space they have used free for decades inside federal buildings. It was the delivery of a promise to Trump's supporters and a good start on a Republican dream to cut the size and authority of the federal government. The latest changes are in addition to the hiring freezes and an outsized number of unfilled jobs because of firings, resignations, and retirements. Now federal workers have become easier to fire, seniority is no longer a factor, and the power of their unions has been diminished. The changes come in a trio of executive orders and can and probably will be undone by the next elected president. The orders can also be undone through lawsuit and government union workers say they're already on it. It was another good day for the big banks yesterday as the Federal Reserve gutted the Volcker Rule. That's a rule put in place after those same Wall Street banks flushed the U.S. economy into the Great Recession, which has caused Americans years of suffering. The aim of the Volcker Rule was to make sure that nothing like 2007-2008 ever happened again. Much of that rule now stripped, the big banks are free to once again make risky investments. After all, what could possibly go wrong? Racism in America and Roseanne, including thoughts from Bob Seska and progress on gun control. After this, more frequently these days, we're asked to pay for something we used to get free, the news. This news comes to you without a paywall, without corporate ownership. It's just plain free. 
So please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon for that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. It was April when Homeland Security reported a new surge in illegal border crossings. DHS called it a crisis, and that served nicely as support for Trump's plan to send National Guard troops to the border, which he then did. After reaching a 46-year low in 2017, a surge in border crossings is still underway. Trump supporters are not pleased, and so neither is Trump. Last week, he took it out on his Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, After having already scolded her a few times previously, it was at a cabinet meeting in front of other cabinet members that Trump tore into Nielsen about the surge of immigrants and refugees and the lack of progress on his big, beautiful border wall, even though she was not brought into the budget process that would have paid for that wall. Trump went on for a half hour as other cabinet members winced and squirmed in their seats. Trump believes stopping immigration is what got him elected. And it was in that cabinet meeting that Trump ordered Nielsen to, quote, close the border. Nielsen is also frustrated, having complained that Trump doesn't understand immigration law or budget restrictions and that his ear is turned more toward far-right conservatives than the facts. Trump has refused to listen to Nielsen when she's tried to explain why certain things can't be done or can't be done quickly. Nielsen was reportedly near quitting at one point. She and Trump may clash again, as the immigration numbers for May are due any day now. By April, the number of families apprehended at the border had increased by 49%, and the number of children being taken from their parents has increased far more dramatically. Hundreds of families separated at the border by border officials just in Arizona since the first of the year. Before Trump, the U.S. government had not taken children from migrating parents. But now, all children are being classified as unaccompanied, something they would not be if the Trump government had not snatched them from their families, including those who came here to get away from murderous gangs in their home countries. Traumatized children, five and six years old, screaming and crying as they're taken away by people in uniforms, many of them shipped off to shelters as far from the border as Chicago. Traumatized parents can go days, weeks, or months without even knowing where their children were taken or when they might see them again. At the same time, separately from that story, the Trump government has lost track of nearly 1,500 unaccompanied child immigrants. 1,475 children placed by the government into foster care are now unaccounted for. Essentially, they're missing. The Trump government has lost nearly 1,500 children. But about this new policy... The Trump administration is now separating from their mothers children as young as 53 weeks, even in cases in which the parents reported to an official U.S. port of entry turning themselves in as refugees seeking asylum. Trump Chief of Staff John Kelly calls it a good deterrent to immigration, and he says the kids will be taken care of, quoting Kelly in exact words, put into foster care or whatever. Or whatever. As Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions has put it repeatedly, if you don't want your child separated, then don't bring them across the border illegally. Trump believes stopping immigration is what got him elected. The Trump administration believes taking babies from their mothers is a good deterrent to immigration. 
Trump says it's up to Democrats to change the law. Lawsuits to stop this new Trump policy have been filed. Thank you to Chris Hayes at MSNBC for bringing us this story. The ACLU, meanwhile, reports that a lot of immigrant children are being physically or sexually abused while in federal custody and that practically nothing is being done to stop it. The ACLU got hold of a report from within DHS that found that for kids between the ages of 5 and 15, one in four of them had been abused by Border Patrol agents, including beatings and sexual assault. Boys and girls, as young as 5, by Border Patrol agents. Kicked molested, and threatened with rape. 80% of the kids said they had been deprived of food and or water while in American federal detention centers. Trump blames Democrats for the policy, even though his administration has chosen to interpret this policy differently than any other, by separating children from their families so those children can be declared unaccompanied. Customs and Border Patrol says the report ignores several improvements that have been made, including improvements in oversight. CBP's inspector general found the claims of abuse unsubstantiated. And Trump says he's working on a plan to cut U.S. aid to countries that don't cooperate with U.S. immigration. He's focused mainly on countries that have stopped accepting people deported to them by the U.S. Four of those countries are being sanctioned for their refusal to help U.S. immigration officials, and they include three African nations. As Trump told our Homeland Security director, we're closed. At one of his rallies for the faithful this week, Trump resurrected his old campaign theme that a wall shall be built and it shall be paid for by Mexico. Trump told his supporters at a campaign rally in Nashville that Mexico isn't doing its part in stopping illegal immigration into the U.S. Mexico isn't helping Trump with his immigration policy, and Trump's unhappy about that. They do absolutely nothing to stop people from going through Mexico, from Honduras, and all these other countries, said Trump, adding, they do nothing to help us. Trump said Mexico would pay for the wall one way or another, and as he told his fans, they will like it. The president of Mexico was watching TV and saw this live and quickly tweeted, no, Mexico will never pay for a wall, not now, not ever. President Enrique Peña Nieto had typed the word never in all caps a language he thought Trump would understand. Trump was upping his game on immigration even in the midst of concern about those 1,500 immigrant children lost by his administration and about babies being snatched from their mothers and about the physical and sexual abuse by U.S. border agents. As on and off as Trump's talks with Kim is his trade war with China. After declaring it on hold last week, this week it's back on with Trump announcing he'll go ahead with $50 billion in new tariffs on Chinese imports to crack down on China for stealing American technology. This 25% tariff would go into effect in early July and would likely raise prices on electronics for U.S. consumers. The idea is to turn up the pressure on China in the broader trade talks in which the Chinese have made only vague promises about buying more energy and agriculture from the U.S., but Trump's aggression toward China makes it harder for China to play nice. The two sides have two weeks to work this out in time to prevent an actual trade war. And despite his earlier denials, Trump is making an exception for China's second biggest cell phone maker, ZTE. ZTE is currently under sanctions from the U.S. government, partly for being a national security risk. 
Bizarrely, if those sanctions are removed, as Trump has proposed, then ZTE would be allowed to sell trackable phones in the U.S. that could be used to steal intellectual property. The same intellectual property Trump claims to be protecting by hitting China with that 25% tariff on electronics. Republican Senator Marco Rubio isn't buying it, tweeting, China uses these telecom companies to spy and steal from us, adding, Congress needs to act. And we've just learned that Trump's new tariff on imported cars would kill well over 150,000 American jobs, according to a trade consulting company study. The study says the price of a $30,000 imported car would go up by more than $6,000. The Dow fell 400 points on Tuesday over all the uncertainty. Since we last met, Donald Trump canceled his upcoming meeting with Kim Jong-un only to resume planning it. The talks were scrapped after North Korea stood up U.S. officials who had gone there to meet with North Korean officials. But as of this broadcast, both sides are mostly acting as though that dust-up never happened. In between Trump's contradictory decisions, the conservative dream of a Nobel Peace Prize for him faded. North Korea was surprised and not surprised. Its government knew Trump was volatile but didn't expect him to call off the talks within hours of the destruction of at least part of North Korea's main nuclear testing facility, even if the explosions were mostly for show. The American reporters who were in North Korea to witness the destruction were in the hands of the North Korean military when Trump announced the talks were off. Still, those reporters were released and sent home unharmed this time. It could have gone much worse. And by pulling out of the talks, however briefly, other nations supportive of the talks were suddenly more skeptical about the U.S. than they are about North Korea. Diplomatically, Trump's timing was horrible. South Korea called it disconcerting and very regrettable. As of now, the talks appear to be back on, but whether they will occur on June 12th as planned still isn't clear. As Trump likes to say, we'll see what happens. Donald Trump hasn't just blown up the Iran nuclear deal. He's punishing U.S. allies who also don't pull out. He's pressuring U.S. friendly nations to withdraw from the deal, as he has done. Officials from Iran and Britain, France, Germany, Russia, and China have been meeting to find a way to keep doing business with each other even though Trump is now sanctioning any country that still does business with Iran, including our very closest allies. Iran wants compensation for the business it will lose without the U.S. and with these sanctions against Iran's customers and suppliers. And Iran has doubts about whether these European countries and other nations can afford to make up the difference. And if they cannot, then Iran plans to go back to making nuclear weapons something the deal that Trump pulled out of would have prevented for at least another decade. The official government count of deaths in Puerto Rico from Hurricane Maria has long stood at 64. A Harvard study just published in the New England Journal of Medicine says the number is closer to 4,645 people or higher, maybe 8,000 lives lost. The official government count appears to be off by thousands. When the lights went out, the elderly could no longer be cared for. Those in critical care lost the use of life-preserving equipment. Phone towers and phone lines were down, and 911 was no longer within reach, and a lot of people were injured in that storm. Some of them seriously, some of them fatally. The official death count was made by Puerto Rican officials. The first count said 16 people had died as Trump visited that territory, and that estimate drew sharp criticism. Two months later, Puerto Rico revised its count to 64. Still, 
more than 4,000 shy of what appears to be a more realistic number. The count had been crippled by the blocked roads, the lack of fuel, and the lack of communications or even electricity. Puerto Rican officials had shot their own people in the foot by vastly underreporting the actual toll of a disaster that was quickly forgotten by the rest of the world. In what may have been the shortest comeback in showbiz history, Roseanne Barr and her namesake TV show are gone and they aren't coming back. After boffo ratings in its return episode that followed 20 years off the air and after a hearty congratulations from Trump, ABC has now canceled Roseanne and her talent agency has dropped her as a client after she went on her own Tuesday Twitter fit, complete with false accusations, disproven conspiracy theories, and the thing that got her fired for good, racism. Roseanne had tweeted that Obama advisor Valerie Jarrett was the offspring of the Muslim Brotherhood and planet of the apes. Valerie Jarrett is an African-American woman. It had been a busy morning on Twitter for Roseanne, now sitting again at the top of the TV world. She had tweeted several disproven conspiracy theories, a la Trump, and named Chelsea Clinton as Chelsea Soros Clinton because Roseanne believes a disproven conspiracy theory about wealthy Democratic activist Steve Soros. The former first daughter politely corrected Barr, to which Barr responded, Sorry to have tweeted incorrect info about you. Please forgive me. Both those sentences with exclamation marks. But Roseanne didn't stop there. She continued her apology by adding, By the way, George Soros is a Nazi who turned in his fellow Jews to be murdered in German concentration camps and stole their wealth. Were you aware of that? Tweeted Roseanne, adding, But we all make mistakes, right, Chelsea? Fact checkers have prevented... Fact checkers have presented evidence that George Soros, one more time, fact checkers have presented evidence that the George Soros conspiracy theory is untrue, but we digress, as the news of late often requires us to do. The hot story Tuesday morning was that Roseanne had tweeted a racist remark about an African-American lawyer. In Roseanne's mind and in her first public apology tweet, she called the remark a joke that was in bad taste. She did offer what appeared to be a sincere apology, and this time without a snappy comeback. But she also promised to leave Twitter, and she didn't. It was a promise she had made and broken before. At last check, her account is still active. Wanda Sykes, the black comedian who was a consulting producer on the show, resigned even after Roseanne's apology. Within hours of Barr's racist tweet, ABC called her remarks repugnant, abhorrent, and they canceled the show they had just renewed for what would have been its 22nd season. Within an hour of that cancellation announcement, the talent agency representing Roseanne dropped her as a client. The folks who got a percentage of her income negotiating her contracts had learned that this golden goose had laid a career-killing egg. ABC had just finished pitching to advertisers what would have been another new season of a show the network touted as one of the top shows on TV. Disney's ABC had a lot riding on the continued success of Roseanne. So did the 200 people who worked on that rebooted show. When the show's cast and crew heard they'd been renewed for another season as a top-rated show, some had made plans for how they would spend the money. Some likely already spent that money based on what they thought was a stable job in show business. Stable jobs in show business mostly don't happen, especially when the star is as volatile as Roseanne Barr. ABC knew this day might come, but gambled it would not be this bad. The network took this known risk 
out of greed, and it seemed to pay off at first. But after the tweet, the network took a beating on social media and from commentators. The pressure was on, public pressure. People were quitting the show. Advertisers were sure to bail. There would be boycotts and maybe protests. Or ABC could just cancel the show and avoid it all. Lost income be damned. TV's seemingly popular Trump supporter was suddenly gone, never to return. The cable networks and local stations that carried the first 20 years of Roseanne's show have also canceled those reruns. That long-running sitcom had been banished, vanished like the Cosby show, gone less than 12 hours after Roseanne's tweet. In that 12 hours, there were conference calls with corporate executives. The first call after that was to Valerie Jarrett to apologize on behalf of the network. The second call was to Roseanne and her publicist. Then came the announcement, Roseanne was history. The comedian was also publicly chastised by her own cast members, including co-producer Sarah Gilbert and DJ, of all people, actor Michael Fishman. It's been reported that Roseanne's TV kids and her real-life kids had been urging her to stay off Twitter. ABC executives had hoped and prayed she would stay off Twitter. She didn't. She still isn't. Roseanne appeared to be up all night into Wednesday morning, and she was still tweeting, adding more than 100 new tweets after another of her goodbyes to the Twitterverse. Among the tweets, an apology to her cast and crew for causing them to lose their jobs, an apology for the tweet itself declaring, I'm not a racist, just an idiot, telling her fans not to defend her, calling what she had said an indefensible mistake, but stressed she didn't want anyone to defend it, and blaming the sleep aid Ambien, which she says makes her do odd things, including smashing eggs against a wall at 2 o'clock in the morning. The makers of Ambien have since refuted that claim. But also, Barr kept hammering at George Soros, saying she felt sorry for President Trump and retweeting memes from fans, including one that pictured Valerie Jarrett alongside an ape. And then Roseanne deleted her earlier apology to the cast and crew after their tweets condemning what she'd said. And she blamed black comedian Wanda Sykes' resignation for ABC's decision to cancel. Conservatives were outraged. They accused ABC, which was already on record saying it hired Roseanne to appeal to Trump voters, they accused ABC of firing Roseanne because she's a Trump supporter. Conservatives sharply criticized the show's cancellation, demanding to know what had become a free speech. The answer, of course, is that Roseanne Barr got and exercised her free speech. She still has that freedom, and she's still using it. But since everything we each do or say has consequences, Roseanne had said a hateful thing that demanded consequences. People objected, exercising their own rights to free speech. The First Amendment worked for everyone involved. The First Amendment gives us the right to put ourselves into these situations. Roseanne exercised that right, and it had consequences. Executive producer Tom Werner says he hopes Roseanne gets the help that she needs. Trump weighed in yesterday. As president of these United States, Trump did not condemn racism or distance himself from Roseanne, of course. Instead, he tore into ABC President Bob Iger for apologizing to Valerie Jarrett and not to him for, quote, the horrible statements made about me on ABC. We've been hearing more from racists and white supremacists and neo-Nazis since the rise of Donald Trump. 
It's been posited that's because they feel more free to speak in the Trump era. Just before Memorial Day in Glen Carbon, Illinois, just before the busiest day of the year at Sunset Hill Cemetery, volunteers show up to plant 1,300 full-sized American flags, one for every veteran buried there. This year when they arrived, they saw a terrible sight. Someone had spray-painted black swastikas on as many as 200 gravestones, two mausoleums, the cemetery's office building, and the statue of an angel. With less than 48 hours until the annual Veterans Memorial Ceremony, a dozen groundskeepers and nearly 200 volunteers went to work with power washers. Other volunteers brought food to fuel the effort, some of them in tears. Glen Carbon, Illinois police released security video of the suspect and asked for the public's help in naming and finding him. And within hours, they had their suspect, who now faces vandalism charges. Hate crime charges are also being considered. The things we do and say have consequences. Roseanne and race relations are the subjects of this week's commentary. From Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Well, it looks like they got me. Yep, I'm guilty of once referring to a public figure as, yeah, a monkey. I'm not joking about that. I did it. The year was 2006. The publication was the Huffington Post, and the victim was George W. Bush. The article in question was headlined, Bush looks an awful lot like a monkey. Frankly, I had completely forgotten about that piece until the other day when dozens of alt-right trolls appeared in my Twitter mentions and in the comments under my Facebook posts with a screen grab of that Huffington Post headline. Go read it for yourself via my Facebook page, but you'll notice a few things that make it entirely different from when Roseanne Barr referred to former Obama administration advisor Valerie Jarrett as a descendant of a character from the Planet of the Apes. Okay, first of all, I'd like to alert your attention to the fact that Bush was and is a wealthy white man from a patrician wasp family, a family that includes his former president father and his former presidential candidate brother, both of whom are also wasps. Secondly, you'll find that the headline was somewhat tongue-in-cheek insofar as I was suggesting that serious journalists and pundits shouldn't have been joining up with the Republicans in referring to Democrats as being similar to bin Laden, an often overheard attack line in 2006. Likewise, I wrote, serious journalists and pundits shouldn't market in the Bush looks like a monkey meme. Are you following me here? All told, I compared Bush to a monkey in the context of calling out its lack of seriousness. However, yeah, sure, I often broke my own rule during the Bush years. In my 2008 book, I wrote that my favorite Bush nicknames were Chimpy McSmirky and Chimpy McFlightsuit. Was it over the top? Maybe a little. Was it in bad taste? Yeah. Was it out of line with what hundreds of people were saying in the blogs at the time? Nope. Was it racist? Not by any definition of the word. And that's the problem. Neither the Red Hat Army nor its cult leader Donald Trump appear to know what racism is or why so many people, including the ICM agency, Ambien, CMT, TV Land, ABC Entertainment, and its parent company, Disney, along with millions of others, were offended by Roseanne's tweet about Valerie Jarrett. They clearly don't understand that calling a black woman an ape or a monkey is vastly different and significantly worse than referring to Trump as having been fathered by an orangutan, Bill Maher's running gag, or circulating a meme in which various photos of Bush are matched up with photos of chimps making similar facial expressions. 
The alt-right goons pursuing me this week thought they nailed me. They thought they nailed Bill Maher. The only problem is that Bush and Trump don't belong to a race of people, African-Americans, who've been demonized, subjugated, enslaved, slandered, lynched, and attacked for the last 300-plus years on this continent. More specifically, African-Americans have long been disgustingly mischaracterized by white oppressors as being ape-like, thus stripping black people of their humanity, making them seem inferior and therefore easier to segregate and tyrannize. The idea was that as long as blacks were considered subhuman, they could be enslaved, either overtly or through political actions such as ginned-up wars on crime and drugs. Seriously, Trumpers, show me when wealthy WASP legacy families were crushed under the same societal indignities as African Americans have been, and if you can cite parallel examples, I'll apologize and retract my Bush looks like a monkey memes from, you know, 12 years ago. Don't hold your breath, though. The Trumpers won't do it because they can't do it. Forgive me for stating the obvious, but the history of systemic racism in America, specifically referencing monkeys in many cases, is why it's morally reprehensible to call any person of color an ape or similar. We're decades beyond that now, and it's an embarrassing chapter in our history. Roseanne seems to have forgotten about history. Either that or she simply doesn't care about the long shadow of American racism. Because the most loyal Trump supporters happen to believe that, just because Trump won in 2016, all concerns about racism, homophobia, or misogyny were disappeared like half of the Avengers after Thanos did his Infinity Gauntlet thing. Just because Trump won, they believe they have complete latitude to say or do whatever awfulness pops into their worm-infested brains without any ramifications or accountability. And wow, are they wrong about that one. Turns out, to borrow from Bill Maher, we're still here. Nothing has changed since January 20th, 2017, except the occupant of the Oval Office. Surprise, surprise, engaging in racist tactics, marching in the name of Nazism and white supremacy, or persecuting anyone who looks vaguely Mexican is still horrendous, inhumane, and worthy of rebuke. Whether it's Trump himself or that cell phone woman or the New York lawyer who was driven into hiding— the forces of decency and dignity are, in fact, even more active than ever before. Only now we have a better sense of who's racist because the red hats feel artificially safe to blurt it all. Shockingly, though, it turns out both Bill O'Reilly and Tommy Lahren agree that Roseanne's tweet was unforgivable. So there's some hope for the other side. Unfortunately, O'Reilly and Lahren are outliers. The rest of the Red Hat Army is now seeking revenge against public figures like me who routinely condemn racism. This is Trumpism. No accountability, no apologies, no morality. Worse, the basis for their arguments is more informed than ever before. Today, the ruling faction in America deals in fact-free, inchoate screaming rather than cleverly constructed arguments in support of their policies. Gibberish rules the day in Trumpland. Hashtags like impeach Obama, even though Obama can't in any way be impeached now, as well as attacks like conflating Bush slash monkey with Jarrett slash ape, don't make any sense, and yet they're proudly circulating this horse crap anyway. I suppose it's all in the name of the first rule of Trumpism. Troll and antagonize the snowflakes no matter what. Winning in the small minds of the Red Hats is defined by the volume of the outcry against them. They believe they're winning whenever the normals become outraged as a consequence of being trolled. They don't realize how badly it's backfiring, though with pro-Trump trolls such as Roseanne driven from the public discourse nearly every week, thus illustrating how monumentally foolish they truly are. 
If this is winning, it'll be a long time before I get bored with this kind of winning, especially when I successfully use their trolling against them. For example, Bush totally looked chimp-like. Sue me. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, The Daily Matter, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. Join me with him there every Tuesday. The decision by Dick's Sporting Goods to limit gun sales has not hurt business. Sales for other merchandise at Dick's are up nearly 5%, even after the decision to restrict gun sales to customers over 21 and to stop selling assault-style weapons. The good sales numbers boosted Dick's stock value by 23%. New Hampshire lawmakers have voted to give $100,000 to the families of teachers who are killed on the job. Not cops, teachers killed on the job, K through college. One lawmaker said, I pray to God we never have to use the death benefit. Odds are they will. The lawmakers continue to debate whether teachers should be trained to carry guns in the classrooms to shoot back or shoot first. The rose-red state of Kansas already has a law that allows teachers to pack heat in class, but almost none of the state schools have followed through. Why? Insurance. The school district's insurance companies have told them that if the teachers start carrying firearms, the insurer will stop carrying the district. Kansas lawmakers, true to their colors, tried to pass a bill to force the insurance companies to play along. The insurance lobby being what it is, the bill died. Texas has taken the lead on arming teachers, and that effort is already underway. Texas governor cited the good guy with a gun theory and added, but an even better way is for people with a gun. A school shooting that keeps us on our one-a-week track occurred this past Friday at a middle school in Indiana. The student gunman was arrested unharmed after wounding a fellow student and a teacher. Quoting the state police superintendent, here we go again. The police chief of Houston, where 10 people were killed and 13 wounded in a school shooting two weeks ago, has had enough of the debate. After a week of back and forth with NRA spokesmodel Dana Lash, Houston Chief Art Acevedo wrote, I've hit rock bottom and I'm not interested in your views. And he said more to the Washington Post. It's Sandy Hook. It's Columbine. It's San Isidro at the McDonald's. There are so many people dying from gun violence, he said, and we do so little to try to address it. We can't even talk about it without demonizing one another. After 32 years in law enforcement, Acevedo wants universal background checks to close the gun show loophole, and he wants tougher penalties for gun owners who don't store their weapons safely, adding, I'm tired of people saying there's nothing that can be done. As he told the NRA's Dana Lash on Twitter, blah, blah, blah and he's threatened to sue the NRA if it continues to misrepresent his views. In Newtown, Connecticut, parents of dead elementary school students are suing right-wing talk show host Alex Jones for calling them liars and actors and claiming that no children died at Sandy Hook, that it was all a hoax by the gun control crowd. Alex Jones may be held accountable for his words. And back in Parkland, Florida, the families of two of the students killed at their high school are suing the maker of the gun, and the store that sold it to the gunman. This lawsuit says American Outdoor Brands and Sunrise Tactical Supply are partly to blame for that February 14th massacre and that they should be held accountable. Under Florida law, the families will have to pay the court cost if they lose, and the laws concerning the makers and sellers of weapons are unclear. Other families are suing the gunman himself. 
And Stoneman Douglas senior and mass shooting survivor David Hogg is moving on to bigger jobs. Hogg helped organize the March for Our Lives that mobilized hundreds of thousands of people across the country and around the world. He's co-written a book now with his sister about the birth of this new youth-led gun control movement. He's led a successful boycott of a Fox News host who had mocked him. He's worked for voter registration and has nearly 800,000 followers on Twitter. He says he needs a secretary. He really does. Hogg is now organizing a kind of anti-NRA, an organization with equal or greater influence but for totally opposite goals. And the March for Our Lives organization, of which he is still a part, continues to meet and plan to get out the anti-gun vote for this year's midterm election. David Hogg says if you haven't seen him lately, it's because he's been busy. And it was prom season. And David Hogg is not the only student activist who's moving on after high school. Democratic lawmakers are inviting students from Parkland to work as interns this summer on Capitol Hill. The Democrats say they need these young adults to help write the bills that could change our gun laws and prevent gun violence. In Tennessee, a Republican congresswoman puts the blame for school shootings on pornography. Now also a gubernatorial candidate, Diane Black declared, as a nurse, I go back to root causes. Pornography was first on her list, followed by a perceived deterioration of family and violence in the movies. Pornography, she said, is, quote, on the shelf when you walk into the grocery store. This week in sex scandals, the status of Star Wars and what the hell is that thing? In the third and final segment, up next. Cut that cord. Get the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up with your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Hellers stay in your ears with five hours of use and a hundred hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller have a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors, and you can even get buds in sets of two or three. And Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality, and that's guaranteed. Shipping is free anywhere on the planet. And because everything does sound better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at TweakedAudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through TweakedAudio.com and my other great sponsors, as well as through the donate button at BuzzBurbank.com. Even as gasoline prices are again pushing four bucks in California and already well above three bucks in the rest of the country, the resistance is coming from state officials who did not get the blessing that the Trump administration had bestowed on Florida. Pushing the Republican drill baby drill agenda, Trump opened up federal waters in the 12-mile limit for oil drilling. But because Florida Governor Rick Scott has a cozy relationship with Trump, the state of Florida got a pass. And the other states along the coast were furious. After pouring millions into restoring ecology and cleanliness to its shorelines, New Jersey does not want oil wells off its coast. City officials up and down the Jersey shore put pressure on their state lawmakers, and those lawmakers then voted to ban offshore drilling in state waters, which extend three miles out. But that still left nine miles of federal waters. So the lawmakers tweaked the bill to also ban oil pipelines within its three-mile limit. No way to get the oil to shore from that nine-mile zone. New York liked what it saw in New Jersey and quickly passed a similar law. Delaware appears to be next. 
The Trump offshore drilling plan started on shaky ground, and that ground's gotten shakier. So there's that. The U.S. Supreme Court this week cleared the way for Arkansas's controversial abortion law to go into effect July 15th. The law restricts chemically induced abortions, which are usually done early in a pregnancy, not to be confused with the morning after pill, which prevents conception as opposed to aborting a fetus. This new law in Arkansas limits those abortions to doctors who have admitting privileges to a nearby hospital. The high court let the law stand by refusing to hear the case until it can be heard in lower courts, which is precisely what Planned Parenthood says it will now pursue. In perhaps its biggest break ever from the Roman Catholic Church, the voters of Ireland have repealed their country's constitutional ban on abortion. Turnout was high as a two-thirds majority voted down the ban. Irish citizens living in other countries had returned to their homeland to cast their votes. The president of the University of Southern California is resigning in the midst of a sex scandal involving a university gynecologist. The doctor is accused of conducting inappropriate exams on college women for decades and remained in that position despite multiple complaints to administrators. The school's president has been accused by hundreds of students, faculty, and alumni of failing to respond to the accusations of the doctor making crude comments, taking inappropriate photographs, and making his patients disrobe completely and occasionally groping them for his own sexual gratification during his more than 30 years at USC. Missouri Governor Eric Greitens has resigned to avoid being impeached over campaign finance violations. Scrutiny of Greitens intensified when it was revealed he'd taken compromising photos of his mistress, threatening to blackmail her with them if she revealed their relationship. Greitens' last day on the job, theoretically, is tomorrow. Under a plea deal, if he resigns as agreed, the campaign finance felony charge against him gets dropped. But he has nothing left to trade for the felony charges he faces in that cyber blackmail case or the impeachment trial he may still face in the Missouri Senate. Eric Greitens had been considered a rising star in the Republican Party. Greitens had tried to use the Donald Trump defense, claiming fake news and a conspiracy. It didn't work. Harvey Weinstein was escorted to jail in handcuffs this past week. He was arrested and charged with rape and other sex abuse charges. The 66-year-old still claims the sex was consensual and says he will not cooperate with the grand jury. Weinstein now wears an ankle bracelet and had to give up his passport. We've got you, Harvey, tweeted actress Rose McGowan, who was the first to publicly accuse him of rape. Weinstein may be headed for jail. He may be headed for prison for life. A grand jury has already seen enough evidence to indict him. Oscar-winning actor Morgan Freeman is now among the accused. Several women have accused Freeman of sexual harassment, one saying he lifted her skirt and asked if she was wearing underwear. Freeman apologized at first, but later demanded a retraction and an apology from CNN for its coverage of the story. Most movie producers would kill for an opening weekend of $101 million, unless they're making a Star Wars movie. Early projections said the movie would make $150 million in North America that first weekend, but Rogue One opened at only about a third of the ticket sales of its predecessor, The Force Awakens. Still, it's a $100 million opening for Disney, which continues to lead Hollywood into more profitable days, that and the need to escape the news. Deadpool 2 was in second place with nearly $43 million in U.S. and Canadian ticket sales. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. 
Because Florida's medical marijuana law bans the smoking of that product, a county circuit court judge has ruled that part of the law is unconstitutional. The smoking ban was not part of the referendum passed by two-thirds of Florida voters. The state's Republican lawmakers added that in to the version they passed. The judge invoked both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson in making her decision. In short, the Florida ban on smoking medical marijuana has been struck down. Hormel is recalling hundreds of tons of spam, 228,614 cans of that compressed meat product have been recalled because they may contain small metal fragments. A few customers got minor oral injuries from eating the pork loaf that's bonded with potato starch, salt, sugar, and sodium nitrate. Sears' long goodbye continues painfully. Sears now says it's closing 72 more stores after sales fell 30% in the first quarter of this year as the struggling retailer lost $424 million just in that three-month period. Sears says it has 100 unprofitable stores and that it may close more than 72 stores as the cost-cutting progresses. People are once again talking about the dog man. A man in Denton, Montana, was within the law when he shot to death an animal with four legs and canine teeth that was threatening his herd of livestock. He believed it was a wolf, and killing wolves is legal in Montana. But on closer examination, the rancher wasn't sure what he'd killed. Its canine teeth were much shorter than that of a wolf, and its front paws were too tiny, and its claws were too long. The ears were too big. He called wildlife officials to look into it. They agree. It's not a wolf. They don't know what it is. They're currently running DNA tests. In the meantime, folklore and theories abound. It's Bigfoot, say some. It's Dogman, say some. Dogman is like Bigfoot, but looks like a dog and walks upright. One of our citizens posted that people see dogmen every day, but that the government shuts them down. Quoting the conspiracy theorist post, several people report being strong-armed into keeping quiet by men wearing black suits. These are just facts, the citizen said. The fact is there's only been one such sighting in Montana, and it has not been confirmed. More likely, this creature is a hybrid of not a dog and a man, but of a dog and a wolf. But for now, we don't know what it is. Visitors to an Orange County park in Florida are being warned about aggressive squirrels. County Parks and Rec says it's gotten five complaints in the past month about squirrel attacks in Shadow Bay Park. In two incidents, the squirrels lunged toward and scratched children. So now there are signs in the park. Please do not feed the wildlife, says one sign. Please avoid contact with squirrels, reads another. Animal experts know that feeding wild animals of any type makes them less shy about humans and more aggressive about getting that people food. Officials say squirrels that behave aggressively are being relocated. Two squirrels have already been escorted out of the park. Another electric highway sign has been hacked in the name of fun and commentary. Roadside signs on old U.S. Route 1 in North Carolina this week featured a sign warning drivers to expect delays on June 3rd because of, quote, idiots on bikes. Or as another hacked sign read, a-holes on bikes. It's a reference to the biking portion of this weekend's Ironman Triathlon in North Carolina. Officials have no suspects, so whoever did this walks free to strike again. And finally today, we go out in style. We go out today in a Barbie car. 
Sure, the body might be bright pink plastic, but this baby can move. It is, after all, a Barbie Power Wheels Mustang. A guy named Edwin modified one using parts from a go-kart, wide, smooth Goodyear tires, and the engine from a Honda dirt bike, which is why this Barbie car we go out in today can do donuts and reach speeds of up to 72 miles an hour. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.